Hello and welcome to the program, UFO Warning. In this episode, we're talking about dangerous UFOs. That's correct, dangerous UFOs. Now, this uh, article comes to us from How Stuff Works. That's science.howstuffworks.com. I'll have a link there at the Buy Me a Coffee website. The first case we're talking about is the 1975 North Dakota UFO sighting. At least that's the title of the article anyway. They come down here, they tell us Sandy Larson, her 15-year-old daughter Jackie, and Jackie's boyfriend, Terry O'Leary, awoke early that morning, August 26, 1975. Mrs. Larson, who lived in Fargo, North Dakota, was planning to take a real estate test in Bismarck, 200 miles away. At 4 a.m., 45 miles west of Fargo, on Interstate 94, they encountered an unexpected, imaginable, unimaginable unknown. First, they saw a flash and heard a rumbling sound. Then, in the southern sky heading east, they saw 8 to 10 glowing objects with smoke around them. One was notably larger than the others, and the witnesses had the impression that in some fashion the other objects had come out of it. The UFOs descended until they were above a grove of trees 20 yards away. Then half of them shot away. The three witnesses suddenly felt an odd sensation, as if they had been frozen or stuck for a second or two. And that almost sounds like time slip to me. Then the UFOs were departing. Even more weirdly, Jackie, who had been sitting in the middle of the front seat between Larry and her mother, now sat in the middle of the back seat, with no idea how she had gotten there. Moreover, the time now was an hour later. Clearly, these guys have been abducted, in my opinion. And, and sometimes, it's like these entities kidnap these people, and then just haphazardly put them back in a car and arrange them like they're dolls or something. Kind of the same thing we see with the cattle mutilations. Uh, pick them up one place put them down somewhere else. Just really don't care. It's almost like they're having to operate within a certain con uh, set of confines. You know, people have talked about a treaty with Eisenhower. Maybe it goes deeper than that. Maybe it's some sort of, you know, uh, universal construct that's been set up where these things are only allowed to take this uh, human abduction thing so far. But I'll tell you, it's far enough as far as I'm concerned. The following December, Sandy and Jackie separately underwent hypnosis under the direction of University of Wyoming psychologist Dr. Leo Sprinkle. Though Terry confirmed the sighting and the peculiar feelings associated with it, he declined the offer to explore the incident further. Jackie remembered being outside the car in a state of paralysis. Her mother told of being floated into the UFO with Terry. A six-foot-tall robot-like being with glaring eyes put her on a table, rubbed a clear liquid over her, and inserted an instrument up her nose, then performed other medical procedures. Dizzy and nauseous, she felt as if her head would explode. After a period of time, she and Terry, whom she did not recall seeing inside the UFO, were returned to their car, and all conscious memory of the incident vanished immediately. Yeah, sound like some really nice creatures, don't they? Just here to help, sing Kumbaya, help us save the world, uh, contribute to our environmental knowledge, all that kind of awesome stuff. I'm not seeing any of that. I'm seeing a family, 1975, going along the highway, minding their own business, and the next thing you know, they're in this spacecraft, kidnapped by these entities, having these uh, really, uh, to me, painful medical procedures done on them. Now, this next one is the Cache Landrum UFO incident. Now, this one has a picture of Vicki Landrum and Betty Cash, and it says that they fell victim to radiation sickness after a December 1980 close encounter. 
The author tells us a UFO sighting on the evening of December 29, 1980 changed the lives of three Texans forever and not for the good. While driving through the southern tip of the East Texas Piney Woods north of Houston, Betty Cash, Vicki Landrum, and Vicki's seven-year-old grandson, Colby, came upon a huge diamond-shaped object just above the trees and 130 feet away. Cash hit the brakes, and she and the elder Landrum stepped outside. Immediately, they noticed intense heat. Their faces felt as if they were burning. When Vicky re-entered the car and touched the dashboard to steady herself, she left a handprint. That's kind of scary. Blasting fire and heat, the UFO slowly ascended. Suddenly, numerous helicopters, 23 in all, appeared from all directions, positioning themselves near the strange craft. By this time, the witnesses were back in the car and watching the spectacle from their moving vehicle. Other motorists saw the object and the helicopters from different, more distant locations. Eventually, the flying objects were lost to view. Unfortunately, the episode was only the beginning. Back home, the three fell sick, cash most severely. She suffered blisters, nausea, headaches, diarrhea, loss of hair, and reddening of the eyes. On January 3rd, unable to walk and nearly unconscious, she was admitted to a Houston hospital. Vicky and Colby were experiencing the same symptoms, though less severely. Yeah, and I think what you see there is um, just the effects that these things can have. It finishes up, it tells us the witness's health problems continue to this day. In September 1991, Cash's personal physician, Dr. Brian McKellen, told the Houston Post that her condition was a textbook case of radiation poisoning, comparable to being three to five miles from the epicenter of Hiroshima. That's a pretty big deal. For years, the three have pursued their case through the courts seeking answers and redress, but official agencies deny any knowledge of the incident, even though the helicopters have been identified as twin rotor Boeing CH-47 Chinooks used by both the Army and the Marines. Interesting that this case didn't come up during any of the UFO hearings, isn't it? Probably not going to be reported on the new UFO website either, I don't imagine. Now, this one here is called the 1979 Minnesota UFO Sighting. And they got a pretty good picture here, this flying saucer at a 45-degree angle just hovering there above the tree line. It says Val Johnson spotted a UFO in an isolated area of Minnesota, then tells us studying the brilliant light in the stand of trees two and a half miles south of him, Marshall County Deputy Sheriff Val Johnson wondered if drug smugglers had flown over the Canadian border into the flat, isolated terrain of the far northwestern Minnesota. The light was close to the ground, suggesting that the plane had either landed or crashed. Or maybe there was some simpler explanation. Johnson headed down the county highway to investigate. It was 1.40 a.m. on August 27, 1979. Let me tell you, rural Minnesota, 1979, probably not a lot of light pollution, probably real dark out there. The next thing Johnson knew, the light was shooting directly toward him, moving so fast that its passage seemed almost instantaneous. The last thing he heard was the sound of breaking glass, at 2.19 a.m., a weak voice crackled over the radio in the sheriff's dispatcher office at Warren, Minnesota. It was Johnson, who had just regained consciousness. His car had skidded sideways and now was stretched at an angle across the northbound lane, its front tilting toward the ditch. Asked what happened, Johnson could only reply, I don't know, something just hit my car. You'll notice he didn't hit something, although you might think, well, maybe he hit a deer or something. No, he didn't hit anything. Something hit him. Officers who arrived on the scene found the car had sustained strange damage, including a seriously cracked windshield, a bent antenna, smashed lights, and other damage. Look, if you see this car, 
And I've seen pictures of it. You can go online and look. That antenna bent, that's weird. Both the car clock and Johnson's wristwatch were running 14 minutes slow, though both had been keeping correct time until the UFO incident. So you got that? Both the wristwatch and the car clock. It's almost like they just took the car up there with him. Or maybe he entered some kind of vortex where time just stopped for 14 minutes. It goes on, it says, Johnson's eyes hurt badly as if, ex and if, as if an examining physician declared from welding burns. Welding burns, almost like radiation maybe. Alan Hendry of the Center for UFO Studies, along with experts from Ford and Honeywell, conducted an extensive investigation. Their conclusion, the windshield damage was caused by stones, apparently carried in the wake of the unknown object. Well, that's interesting. At least, you know, they recognized that there was an object involved. The Honeywell expert thought the bent antenna probably resulted from a high-velocity air blast superimposed on the air movement over the fast-moving car. Something happened that just, that just snapped this thing over like a twig. Very, very strange. Let's take a look at another one here. Now, this next one's known as the Falcon Lake Incident, and we've talked about this as well as the others on the podcast before, all very interesting cases. This has got a picture here of uh, the experience of Milchep's cap, it says, was burned and his glove melted in a dramatic Manitoba close encounter in 1967. Stephen Mikulak was searching for minerals along Falcon Lake, 80 miles east of Winnipeg, Manitoba, on May 20th, 1967, when he heard the cackling of geese. Looking up into the early afternoon sky, he saw two glowing oval-shaped objects on a steep, swift descent. One abruptly stopped its downward flight, while the other continued, landing on a flat rock outcropping 160 feet away. So he's looking up at the sky. He's out there doing a little bit of uh, mineral prospecting. And he says he sees two glowing oval-shaped objects. And they're coming down quick, a very swift descent. And then he says he sees... One of them continues on, but the other lands on a flat rock outcropping. Maybe this thing's having distress or something. Mitchellak carefully approached the strange craft, which looked like a bowl with a dome on top, 40 feet wide and 15 feet high. It emanated a humming sound and a sulfur stench. On the bottom half, just below the rim of the bowl, was a door-like opening from which muffled voices emanated. They sounded like humans, he reported. I was able to make out two distinct voices one with a higher pitch than the other. Thinking he was dealing with a terrestrial craft, he addressed the speakers in several languages, asking if he could help. Now, if I remember right, Milchek was a, I believe he was an immigrant from Poland, uh, was able to speak uh, Polish, German, Russian, and English, I believe. He got no answer. He spoke, he poked his head through the opening into the interior, seeing only a maze of lights. At that moment, three panel doors slid across and sealed the opening. Oh, this guy's pretty gutsy. Stuck his head through that door. As Milicek stepped back, he touched the vehicle's exterior. It was so hot that it burned his gloves. Suddenly, the object rose, expelling hot air through a grid-like vent and causing Milicek's shirt to erupt into flames. An attack of nausea overtook him. Kind of reminds me a little bit of the one we just talked about out of Texas. When doctors examined... Michalak in a Winnipeg hospital a few hours later, they noted a dramatic burn pattern across his chest, exactly like the grid Michalak had described on the UFO's underside. Michalak's health problems continued and brought him to Minnesota's Mayo Clinic the next year. 
Investigations by official and civilian bodies uncovered no evidence of a UFO hoax. As late as 1975, a member of the Canadian Parliament complained that the government had not released its findings. For crying out loud, I mean, what are you waiting on, you know? It just it, it, it's another one of these cases it seems like where uh, you have you have evidence you know, the sky has been burned you have firsthand account the government investigates and instead of just saying well it was a hoax there's nothing to see here they just don't release anything so this is why when people like me say hey I think they're covering up well it's because of stuff like this I mean there's an incident three or four years later five years later whatever still haven't released evidence just like with the ufo shot down up there over uh you know alaska yukon and lake huron nope can't release a video of that crazy now we got to do a couple more here this is from uh 1980 rosedale ufo it says they have another picture here it says this photograph taken on the evening of may 26 1988 is typical of several taken in recent years of enormous slow moving structures with lights along their perimeter yeah, giant flag saucer with lights around the edges not the one that was spotted here in 1980 but they're just saying this is what it looks like but overall very good picture multicolored orbs and in a circular shape okay so it says the sounds of frightened cattle woke a rancher from a sound sleep in the early morning of september 30th 1980 near his rosedale victoria Australia home. When he went outside, he was astonished to see a domed disc with orange and blue lights gliding about 10 feet above the ground. It rose slightly in the air, hovered briefly above an open 10,000 gallon water tank, and then landed 50 feet away. Right there, I'm wondering if this thing's not there sucking water out of his water tank. The rancher jumped on a motorcycle and sped toward the object, which was making a whistling sound. Suddenly, an awful scream sounded as a black tube extended from the UFO's base. With an ear-splitting bang, the strange craft rose into the air. A blast of hot air almost knocked the witness down. The sounds ceased as the object slowly moved to a position about 30 feet away and 8 feet above the ground. Hovering briefly, it dropped debris, stones, weeds, cow dung from underneath it, then flew away, disappearing in the east. It almost seems like it landed and picked up all the stuff in the bottom of the craft and then just dropped it off as it took off. Where the disc had landed could be found a ring of black flattened grass, 30 feet in diameter. When he examined it in the daylight, the witness discovered that all the yellow flowers within the circle had been removed. Only green grass remained. But even more bizarre, the water tank was empty. There you go. With no evidence of spillage. Now, think about this. 10,000 gallon tank, okay, that's going to be 80,000 pounds, so you, you could fit up two semi-tanker trucks with this thing, and that's going into one of these spacecraft, which is zipping off into the sky like it's nothing. Just imagine 80,000 pounds hovering above the ground and zipping out of sight. Doesn't sound like anything we've got, but even more bizarre, the water tank was empty with no evidence of spillage. Only the muddy residue at the bottom of the tank was left, and there was something peculiar about even this. It had been pulled into a two-foot-high cone shape. The witness was sick with headaches and nausea for more than a week afterward. Almost sounds like radiation again. A similar ring was found the following December at Bundagawa, not far from Rosedale. The water in the nearby reservoir was also mysteriously missing. Yeah, there could be a link here to why these things even come to planet Earth. Maybe it's the water that they're looking for. I don't know. We'll do uh, two more here and then we'll finish up. Now, this one's titled UFO Burns. 
and it's got a it's got some maps on here. It says this map and accompanying pictures depict the startling UFO incident at Fort Itiapu, Brazil. It tells us during the great sighting outbreak of early early November 1957, a number of close encounters had a disturbing consequence: burns and related injuries to witnesses. One of the most dramatic occurrences took place at an army base at Itaipu along Brazil's Atlantic coast. At 2 a.m. on November 4th, two guards saw a luminous orange disc coming in over the ocean at a low altitude and an alarming rate of speed. As it passed above the soldiers, the disc came to an instant stop. The two witnesses suddenly felt a wave of heat and a horrifying sensation as if they had burst into flame. Once again, this sounds to me like radiation. Like It's almost like they're being microwaved. Their screams brought other soldiers stumbling out of their barracks just in time to see the UFO streak away. At that moment, the fort's entire electrical system failed. Amid great secrecy, the two men were rushed to a hospital, a military hospital, and treated during the next few weeks for first and second degree burns to 10% of their bodies. Doesn't sound like those UFOs showed up for a kumbaya moment. But there were other burn cases as well. In the afternoon of the same day is the Atipu incident. The engines of several cars along a rural highway near Oregrande, New Mexico, ceased to function as an egg-shaped object maneuvered close by. A witness who stood particularly close to it contracted a sunburn, quote-unquote. In the early morning hours of November 6, outside Murrum, Indiana, a hovering UFO which bathed his farm in light also seriously burned Rene Gillum's face. He ended up spending two days in the hospital. At around 1.30 a.m. on November 10th, a Madison, Ohio woman saw an acorn-shaped UFO hovering just behind her garage. She watched it for half an hour. In the days afterwards, she developed a body rash and vision problems that her doctor believed suggested radiation poisoning. Subsequent medical tests uncovered no apparent cause for her injuries. Well, they never seem to. Now, this last one here is known as the 1965 uh, Valenceau UFO encounter. This is one that happened over in France that was actually investigated by Jacques Vallée. It's got an image here where this thing landed at. It says the Valenceau UFO left behind a deep hole and other traces and affected the surrounding plant life. Yeah, the guy there had a lavender farm and he couldn't even grow lavender on it for, I think they said, seven years after that. Now it tells us near the French village of Valençol, farmer Maurice Mass was smoking a cigarette just before starting work at 5.45 a.m. on July 1st, 1965, when an object came out of the sky and landed in a lavender field 200 feet away. Annoyed and assuming that a helicopter had made an unauthorized landing, he walked toward it. However, he soon saw it was no helicopter but an oval-shaped structure resting on four legs. In front of it stood two figures, not quite four feet tall, dressed in tight gray-green clothes. Their heads were oversized and with sharp chins. Their eyes were large and slanted, and they were making a grumbling noise. One of the beings pointed a pencil-like device at Mass, paralyzing him in his tracks. The figures entered the UFO and flew away, and the witness needed 20 minutes to recover his mobility. In its wake, the object left a deep hole in a moist area that soon hardened like concrete. Plants in the vicinity decayed, and analysis found a higher amount of calcium at the landing site than elsewhere. Yeah, this elevated uh, level of calcium is something that we see occasionally in these things. It says uh, the Valenzuel case is considered one of the cl classic UFO reports. Investigations by official and civilian agencies confirmed 
Massey's sincerity and good character, a laboratory study of the affected soil and plants confirmed the occurrence of an unusual event. Subsequently, Mass confided that in the course of the encounter, he experienced some sort of communication with the entities. Now, you know, we've talked about how the French, uh, at least they used to at least, investigate UFOs. And it was a, a far uh, better way than what you see here in the United States. Notice how they say that they vouched for the guy's good character. This would have happened uh, in stateside, especially back in 1965. I don't know, Project Blue Book. And they would have just decimated this guy. Uh, he would have been really cool in public, uh, probably would have spread a bunch of lies about him, uh, tried to destroy his life, you know, just push him over the edge, basically, uh, all to discredit his sighting, uh, called the whole thing swamp gas for the planet Venus and ignored the landing site. That's how it would have been handled in the United States. But uh, the French took the stuff a little more seriously. Uh, they didn't lose their mind over it, but they did investigate it at rationally. And so hats off to them, I guess. You know, maybe they can't win a war, but they can at least investigate a UFO properly. Uh, I thought these cases were fascinating. Uh, now, are they being uh, dangerous uh, intentionally? Uh, it's just, just a byproduct of what they are, what they do. Uh, are they even capable of caring about humans? We did see some human interaction in some of these cases, like this here one in France, where this uh, four-foot-tall creature pulls out a pencil-shaped object and blasts him with it. Uh, he lays on the ground for 20 minutes paralyzed. Uh, we see interactions where people are actually burned by these craft physically. I mean, it, you know, it's diagnosis burns in the hospital. So definitely some negative interactions going on here. Uh, what the motives are, uh, who knows. But is there danger involved in some of these UFO sightings? You bet. Until next time, this is UFO Warning. Over and out.